Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Investor Society's Gen Xenomics. I'm your host, Gregory Shelsey, and today I'm going to be interviewing Regis Breen, who's a financial planner in Maryland. We talk about everything from how his upbringing affects the way he deals with clients to the current state of inflation in the United States. I really hope you enjoy. So can you please tell the audience about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, first and foremost, I'm from Maryland and I'm a first generation college student. I think that's important for me to mention. Um, as for my interests, I'm a fitness enthusiast. So if I'm not in the office, I'm probably somewhere else challenging my physical fitness. Um, but more importantly, related to finance, I attended Towson University to study international business and uh, my mother's maiden language, which is German. Um, and in my undergraduate years, I served as the president of the university's investment group. And that was where I was introduced to finance. Um, so as the investment group um, president, I helped in actively managing a pretty robust all equity portfolio um, for the endowment of the university and was fortunate enough to participate in a couple of other student organizations um, comprised of leaders from the College of Business and Economics. And ultimately, at the end of my time, I was able to contribute to the Baltimore Business Review, which is a collaborative publication from the College of Business and Economics and the Chartered Financial and Analyst Society of Baltimore. Um, so in 2018, I graduated and started my journey in the financial services industry. Um, and today I'm a licensed financial advisor, certified divorce financial analyst. And as a financial advisor, I, I like to think of my role as focusing on helping my clients simply align their financial actions with their financial intentions. And we work together to improve their overall financial outlook. Um, I suppose that's a pretty quick summary. So as for your experience in college managing money with that, with your university's endowment, what did you learn the most from that experience? What did you take away and how did that help you as a professional? Yeah, so I think really, really incredible learning experience during undergrad. And um, ultimately the finance department provided me with tons of access to real world experience. Um, so my involvement with the university was probably the most comprehensive learning experience that I've had in my life um, with an emphasis on investing, networking and building business relationships in the real world. In undergrad, you're almost always focused on your curriculum and the exams, the coursework, the materials. And I think that I, I certainly took advantage of the extracurricular activities, the student organizations, um, I think the biggest lesson that I learned was the information that you learn in class, you have to be able to apply that. And so networking, building those business relationships and having that skill set is, is just as important, if not more important than what you know. Speaking of networking, you are a little bit of a LinkedIn celebrity. What are your tips and tricks for my listeners to become LinkedIn famous? Because I have 12 connections right now and I kind of <laughs> need to know that too. What are your thoughts? Um, just get started, man. Just get started. Um, people do business with people that they know, like, and trust. So first and foremost, build connections with your natural market. Um, connect with people that you already know. Connect with people that, um, you know, and for someone who's younger, that might be a smaller group of people than someone who's a little bit older but um you know start with what you have and build on what you have um everyone is a node in a network and if you know five people there's five networks that you can tap into right mm -hmm. so i think the, the biggest tip that i can give is to just start connecting um and make it sincere don't connect with strangers don't make cold touches connect with people who have mutual connection with you interesting and on the topic of getting started, how did you get started in finance, like from a younger age? What was your journey to this, the place that you're at now? Not necessarily college, but what made you choose finance and advising and stuff like that? Sure. Um, so really, this is personal for me. Um, and this, this might resonate with some of the listeners. When I was growing up, 
Um, my parents worked longer and harder than most other parents. And I never really understood why. Um, now, you know, having higher education, having some real life experience, I understand that my parents are never going to retire and I'm going to have to do that for them. Um, and they worked longer and harder because they had to. My mom is a first generation immigrant. My dad um, barely made it out of high school. And so being a first generation college student, you know, having this higher education, being in the financial services industry all stems from me understanding that my parents never had the right financial guidance. They were never able to align their financial actions with their financial intentions. They simply did not understand the importance of financial planning. And um, I, I think it's my responsibility to help each and every one of my clients, let alone my parents, retire with confidence and, and secure a, a more uh, appealing financial outlook. Um, so prior to university, you know, when I was growing up, uh, finances were always tight in the household. And I think that um, it almost gives me a competitive edge um, as, a, as an advisor, because I, I really understand um, how difficult it can be. Um, and so when I, when I see clients going through a difficult situation, it resonates with me. And I'm able to, to tackle that much differently than, than someone who doesn't have that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As for as for growing up in a household where finances were more were more tight, I, I, it's a little bit unrelated, but I want to bring it up. We've seen throughout the course of the pandemic that households that own equities have seen very large jumps in their net worth because they have the disposable income to be able to invest, whereas people in the the lower percentages of income in the United States aren't able to do so. So because you you've seen both ends of it, you you were once raised in a household where finances were tight and now you're in the finance industry, do you see any realistic solution that could be implemented to help narrow that gap? Does it come through financial literacy at a young age? Does it come through the Young Investor Society coming to everyone's school nationwide? What do you see in regards to helping to fix that issue? Or is there really not anything you can do to solve it? No, there, there are certainly things that can be done. Um, I think the Young Investor Society, amongst other non-for-profit, organizations um, are doing an excellent job at bridging the gap that there is in financial literacy, especially in you know elementary, middle and high school. Um, I think that there's just a lack of foundation. Now, just because it's simple to identify that problem doesn't mean it's easy to solve it. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Um, I think that the answer is just more curriculum at a younger age focused on personal finance. Um, not necessarily investing, really just personal finance, just the foundation, the building blocks of you know, having an emergency fund in place, um, the importance of checks and balances. I mean, beyond that, investing, of course, is important, but I, I think the problem that we have today and the gap that we see, the income disparity, um, you know, the wealth disparity, the groundwork isn't there from the start. Um, to, we need to certainly put a foundation in place for you know, the next generation. Um, and I think that the Young Investors Society um, is doing an excellent job at putting that in place. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the, uh, the organization. And uh, I think this organization in particular is always putting their best foot forward. I've volunteered for a handful of non-for-profits that do essentially this, you know, bridging the gap in financial literacy. Um, this organization in particular does the best job that I've seen. You, um, back to your, your, one of your hobbies, you said you like lifting and you like being in the gym. That's, that's something that you're passionate about. So one of the biggest things about being in the gym is about being very habit oriented and making a habit and sticking to it. Do you feel that the reason it's so hard to fix financial literacy in the United States and help that inequality is because people are in a habit of not knowing financial literacy and it's hard to draw them out of it because yeah. I'll be, I'm, I'm a habit person in some ways, shapes and forms, but when it comes to the gym, I most certainly am not. So, you know, we have different outlooks on that, but do you think that 
that's a big reason because it's just a habit for people to spend paychecks or cannot figure out how to save. Yes, for sure. Definitely. Absolutely right. Um, you know, my parents, like many others, never understood the importance of of their habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not even call it financial planning, let alone a money routine, let alone a budget. They never understood the importance of exactly what you're mentioning. They never were able to align their financial actions and their intentions. It was a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. I have the foundation. Um Yeah, I, I think that that ultimately is the underlying issue. Um, it's not that people don't have the financial resources. It's it's they don't know when and where and how to allocate them. Uh, and that's that's the bottom line. Um, it's, it, oftentimes, building wealth is the, the barrier to building wealth is often expenses. It's not income. Yeah, and people do have horrible habits. Um, Greg, to your to your question, do I think it's a bad habit? Absolutely. Um, my parents had bad money habits, and they didn't know that they were bad money habits. They just didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think you know the idea of aligning actions with intentions is ultimately building a new habit. Um, and I help each and every one of my clients do that. You know, we we obviously. Um, know what the right thing to do with our money is. Um, and in some cases we don't, but for the most part, we know we should save. We know we, we should invest. We know we shouldn't spend money unnecessarily. Um, we're creatures of habit. And once we build that habit, it's hard to break. And it's what keeps a lot of people from building wealth. It's, it's the habit of spending the money that you make and not utilizing your free cash flow and putting it somewhere that it can work for you and do the heavy lifting for you. Um, I think it does come down to habits. The interesting thing about habits is I just got done reading a book. It's called The Psychology of Money. I don't know if you've ever read yes. it. I have, it's on my list. I will hand deliver it to you. Great <laughs> book. And basically the ending is talking about how the United States consumer got to this point in society and how basically like changes in interest rates and the baby boom and all that stuff change the way that people perceive themselves as consumers. Mm-hmm. So you're older. And you see consumerism firsthand. What what do you do to stay out of it? Because with social media, especially for younger people, it's a whole thing of like, oh, I got to buy this because everyone else has it. You even see it with stocks and everything. But I think social media as a whole has just made everyone buy everything all the time and everywhere. So what do you do to stay out of that and make sure your finances aren't checked? Except for the fact that you're, you know, you've gone to college for this and you've passed multiple exams. What else do you do on a, on a more fundamental level? Well, I think the intellectual framework um, has kind of been instilled in me, and it was instilled at a young age. I heard my parents talking about bills um, on almost in a daily basis, right? Um, and so the consumerism for me is almost tough to involve myself in um, because I come from a background where we didn't have a ton of discretionary income um, as a household. And you know, there was, there was almost never a, a consumerism in my household growing up. Um, we didn't have the latest and greatest, right? Mm-hmm. So for me now, um, the education has just reinforced the intellectual framework I already had developed at a young age. Um, with that said, you know, there's a great expression, um, you know, don't buy things with money that you don't have for people that you don't like, like to impress people that you don't care about, you know? So um, I think that expression is important to understand. There's a lot of things that people buy just because other people have them. And there's a lot of unnecessary spending that results from a new release of a product or uh, a friend or a colleague or a neighbor, um, you know, taking a step up in whether it's their phone or their car or their home, there's this constant desire to elevate your material possessions. Um, and that consumerism is a problem for sure, especially with the um, infinite leverage of social media products are being displayed more than ever before in front of people that can't afford them even more than ever before. Yeah. It's, it's similar to 
outside of just consumers and like items themselves, it's similar to um, uh, celebrities posting about cryptocurrencies. You know, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian, who I did not know was a financial planner, posted about a coin called <laughs> Ethereum, Ethereum Max um, a few days ago. It went up to like 600% and then tanked. Mm-hmm. So I think social media is lovely for that. But as my listeners know, I don't give out stock picks because I know Mr. Breen would be disappointed if I chose to do that and I can't let him down. So, you know, I, I just, I stick to not posting whatsoever. But back to outside of the personal finance discussion, back back to your career. So you talk about how you feel you have an advantage because of the situation that you grew up in as a child and you understand how to connect financial goals and a current financial state more because you saw and learned from your parents who struggled with that. So what would you say outside of that gives you an advantage as a financial planner? Do you think there's anything that you're more inclined to do naturally that gives you an advantage or does your strength lie in helping people and empathizing with them because you too were in their situation? Yeah, I think the empathy goes a long way. Um, You know, I feel with people. It's not sympathy. I don't feel for them. I feel with them. It's truly empathy. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, my childhood positioned me to become a true fiduciary. You know, I'm someone who's going to do what's in my client's best interest without question. Um, Because I saw what my parents went through and I see where they're going through now. And I see where they will never be unless I get them there. So my parents likely are never going to be in the position to stop working. And in my mind, they sacrificed their retirement outlook for my education. So it's my responsibility to secure their retirement. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, my parents are not the only um, example. So many other people um, just have trouble and they don't understand the importance of planning. Uh, Proper planning prevents poor performance, right? So you're going to perform pretty poorly in retirement if you don't plan for it. Um, The other thing I think that gives me an advantage outside of my personal experience um, with finance in the household growing up is I'm a competitor. I'm a natural born competitor. Um, like I said earlier, my interests, I'm a fitness enthusiast. So if I'm not in my office, I'm probably somewhere else challenging my physical fitness. And I mean that, um, from lacrosse and soccer and college to, um, mixed martial arts and competitive body, bodybuilding, um, now. So I think that my competitiveness in combination with my understanding of how difficult it can be to get out of a bad situation financially and get into a good situation financially. Um, I think that's a pretty potent combination. Um, And it definitely sets me apart from other financial advisors who don't have athletic backgrounds or, you know, grew up in the suburbs and don't really understand how to build something from nothing. So are you saying to be successful, I need to figure out how to bench press more than the bar and move to the city? Because I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the weightlifting helps everyone. It, it helps me. I think everyone has their own um, outlet to channel their energy. And for me, it's, it's physical. For some people, it's above the shoulders, right? Yeah. Um, See, after I pulled my growth plate in freshman year, because I, I tried bench pressing more than the bar, I said, you know what? I said, that's it for me. I'm done. I'm retired. I'm hanging up the cleats. I'm leaving it alone, Mr. Green. I can't. You've made a lot of progress above the shoulders since, I'm sure. Yeah, but trust me, below, I've been the exact same. I've grown. I've grown. There's an achievement. That's where my competitive energy comes from. Grown nine inches in high school so far. Are you proud of me? That's that's incredible. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> but besides, so back to your career, although it's easy to get sidetracked with somebody who does competitive bodybuilding and can bench press me multiple times. What would you say is your favorite part of building a financial plan? I'm assuming you're going to say aligning goals, but beyond aligning goals, because that's something clearly near and dear to your heart, what else do you enjoy doing in your job, in your current environment? What makes it exciting for you? Honestly, um, my favorite aspect of financial planning isn't so much the alignment. It's, It's identifying the problems and implementing the solutions. Um, for instance, if a new prospect or a client provides me with their financial information for the first time, I'm really looking forward to evaluating those documents. Um, I sincerely have the urge to 
look through the insurance documents, look through the investment account statements and identify the inefficiencies. Um, you know, the most rewarding aspect of financial planning for me personally is developing and presenting the solutions. Um, suppose that is aligning actions and intentions, but I like to do the forensic work um, and feel like I'm discovering things that we can enhance upon um, and, you know, maybe even position new solutions along the way. But I love helping people feel more confident, connected, and just in control of their finances. And financial planning helps with do that. So as for identifying issues, some, some issues like we spoke about earlier come from bad financial habits. So yes. although you could probably flex your muscles and scare half the country, <laughs> if someone comes in your office and they spend half their paycheck on Chipotle every week, you telling them not to do it probably won't stop them. So because that's your favorite part of the plan is identifying issues, what do you do outside of telling people to not do bad things? To get it to work because I doubt it's that cut and dry. Yeah, so we have um, developed a proprietary process um, and I implement this proprietary process and it ultimately is broken down into principles. Um, and there is a process for those in the wealth accumulation phase, someone like you and I, mm -hmm. uh, and there are wealth building principles um, for those in the distribution phase as well. Um, to maintain their wealth, right, and, and have longevity there. Um, and those principles for someone who's accumulating wealth might be, hey, listen, don't spend more than 30% of your gross annual income on your living expenses, on your residential expenses. If you're spending more than 30% of your gross income on that particular living expense just for the roof over your head, it's likely going to become prohibitive for you to save and invest and build wealth on top of your other expenses. Yeah. So, you know, we, we try not to just identify what someone's doing incorrectly or identify the inefficiencies and problems. More so, we want to lay down the framework, like, hey, here are the principles that we want to implement together. And you might be accomplishing some of these already without knowing it. And others, we're going we're gonna to come to realize that your residential expense might be 40% of your gross income. I mean, we might want to consider either increasing your income or reducing that expense. Um, and so it comes down to, you know, building the foundation um, and starting over. Um, the principles help me communicate that with clients. And I see it in two different phases, wealth accumulation and wealth distribution. As for um, wealth accumulation, another interesting bit from that book was talking about compound interest. Now, the reason why Warren Buffett is so successful is because he let things compound for like 70 years. Mm -hmm. So for you, I don't know the exact age that most of your clients tend to be, but do you find that there's some obstacles if they're older? Because you're not getting people who are 18. You're getting people who are probably like 40, maybe 30. So do you see obstacles with that? And how do you go about overcoming them? Absolutely. Um, Greg, I speak to individuals every day every day that are in their 50s, even early 60s, that aren't prepared for retirement. And in that case, they don't have time on their side. And compounding, the compounding effect, you know, it's not applicable. Mm -hmm. Not something that we can work with. It's not a tool in our toolbox. Um, time is working against them in that case. And ultimately, you know, that's the most valuable asset we have. We, we can't recreate the time that they weren't planning and saving for retirement. All we can do is use the time that we have left. And with that time that we have left, we often have to save a lot more in a shorter period of time, or we have to pursue a much higher rate of return for a much higher risk. And ultimately, compounding interest is, you know, uh, I believe it's referred to as the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah. And I think that that, that stance, um, it's easy to plan when time's on your side. It's very difficult to plan when time's not on your side. It becomes a very difficult equation to back yourself out of. So if I were to wait until I'm 60 to ask you to help me retire, would you just YOLO my funds into, into stock options? What's the, is that the thought process if you have to chase higher returns? Are you 
Well, we, we, you know, we consider a couple of different things. There's a lot of levers that we, we have to consider pulling or not pulling, um, whether it's increasing your rate of return, reducing your spending during retirement, delaying retirement. Um, there are a number of, you know, different variables in that equation. Um, and some of them, depending on the client situation, um, might be more opportune than others. So in financial planning, it is always a case-by-case -case, um, plan. Every, everyone's financial situation is unique, regardless of the broader market outlook or the economy. Everyone has a different risk tolerance. Everyone has a different time horizon. And the planning, therefore, is always aligned with, with that unique situation. Um, Compounding interest is wonderful when you can take advantage of it. So no YOLO stock options. That's no YOLO I, stock. I wanted I wanted to hear you say yes to that. Um, <laughs> but what was I going to say? As as for that as a whole, what would you say personally outside of your profession, your risk tolerances because you're younger? Me, I don't YOLO my money because I I don't want my mom and dad to see the Charles Schwab report and say why'd you put half your portfolio in the GameStop call options, but. <laughs> I have an appetite for risk. How do, how do you feel, especially with your upbringing? Do you think your upbringing has made you, has made you more averse to risk mm. or have you kind of shaken that off and now, now you're full-blown Wall Street bets trader? That's a great question. Um, certainly not a full-blown Wall Street bets trader. Um, that's a good question, Greg. Um, I'm not risk averse. I, I certainly participate in the market and I do take risk. I think there's a difference between speculating and investing. And mm -hmm. I both know that an investment is something that likely is going to produce solid returns, perhaps has solid fundamentals, um, and there's an underlying investment thesis, a valid one. Mm -hmm. Speculating typically doesn't have any of that. Um, I don't speculate. I invest. I mm -hmm. don't and pray, I aim and fire. So I do take risk, yeah. related risks. Um, I don't think that I'm risk averse because of my childhood, although that is a brilliant question and I can see why you might ask. Because, you know, I, another book, since I'm just plugging books, while I'm plugging things, uh, feel free to listen to the stock options episode of Gen Zenomics. I, I made, that, made that not too long ago. I'd appreciate it. Um, there's another great behavioral economics book from Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. I have it. I just started reading it last week. Beautiful. It is beautiful. You and I are going to start a book club. Um, and basically, he talks about how losses hurt more than gains feel good, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like a fundamental thing. So the reasons that negotiations will hit a stalemate is because everybody's upset that they're losing, but they're not happy that they're winning. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that you don't have that, especially from where you come from. But do you know people in the industry? Is it an issue in the industry where there are individuals who are so afraid to lose money? for clients that they never really make gains and it's just a very, very dreadful existence. Is that really an issue or do most professionals figure out how to overcome being risk averse regardless of their background? Yeah, well, I think that as a financial advisor, we're always transparent with, with the level of risk that we're taking and the return that we're pursuing. Um, and that's always based on the client's appetite for risk and the return that they're seeking. So oftentimes the client and the advisor, I know in my relationships, we're always aligned on what mm -hmm. we're looking at. Um, yeah. And we're not taking an unnecessary amount of risk. We're always going to be on the efficient frontier. I know what rate of return they're looking to pursue and we're not going to take any more risk or any um, unnecessary risk um, while we pursue that rate of return. Um, it's, it's difficult because clients often do call you when markets are down and they leave you alone when markets are up. And that's just the underlying psychology. That's the animal spirits, right? Of we're emotional creatures. And when we start losing, we want to get more involved um, and we want to start winning. But when we're winning, we think nothing of it. Um, yes, thinking fast and slow is going to be a good read. I'm getting through it. Um, for me personally, I, I just try to communicate as transparently as possible. And, you know, multiple times per year with my clients, we're making sure that 
the investment portfolio is perfectly aligned um, based on what their particular situation um, calls for and what their risk appetite is. It's difficult because people change their minds overnight. That must be fun. I can't imagine. But as for, as for speculation, the market's become a lot more speculative recently. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you about specific stocks. I'll keep your blood pressure down. But overall, <laughs> as, a, as someone um, in the industry, how many, is it more difficult to justify average and modest rates of return to clients when there are kids in their mother's basements making 5,000% off a of Dogecoin on a Saturday? Or mm-hmm. do you feel that the people you're investing with are well-oriented enough that they don't try and pivot to catch every single ounce of speculation? How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so it's a different target market. Um, to answer mm-hmm. your question, it's, you know, we, we tend not to, and when I say we, I mean my firm. I apologize. Um, we have a target audience that generally consists of sophisticated high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. And these are typically long-term investors. Yeah. Um, in which case, you know, the meme stocks, the cryptocurrency, the short-term trading, the speculating is not something that we do and it's not something they're interested in. Um, it doesn't disrupt my particular role um, or my relationships. With that said, we have had clients call and about Dogecoin and, you know, um, GameStop and AMC um, amongst other altcoins and cryptocurrencies and, and meme stocks. Um, it's, it's been an interesting year. Uh, last year was also an interesting year. I, I personally believe that long-term investors should simply avoid the equities that are so-called meme stocks. Um, and, you know, short-term investors, traders might consider that, but that's not my particular audience. That's not yeah. my particular client base. So it's not disruptive for me. It's it's, um, it's certainly interesting. There's a there's a new paradigm here in, in investments. Now everyone has the ability to trade from their pockets, and that is being reflected in the broader market. Uh, Ten years ago, you couldn't you couldn't do that commission free from the phone in your pocket. Yeah. So what we're seeing is just the evolution of the industry. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. I love watching it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. So Peter Lynch is my favorite investor. Sure. Um, yeah. I might, Benjamin, I might, Benjamin Graham's protege. Warren Buffett. My mistake. Yeah. Peter Lynch was a fidelity in the eighties yeah. and nineties. And what I like about him is I'm going to geek out for a minute. If you don't mind, Go he like, it. he likes value, but he also values growth a lot more than Warren Buffett. So like Warren Buffett has this whole thing where like, although the audience won't be able to see it, Warren Buffett will buy a, a $1 water bottle for 60 cents and he won't sell it even if they start storming the coasts of America. He just will not sell an equity ever. And although I think that's incredibly respectable and it takes a lot of discipline, I think factoring in growth and how far along a company is is important. So Peter Lynch, that being said, he, um, he, calls, he has something called five stages to determining when a market is at a top. And the way he does it is, it's how people interact with him at a cocktail party. So he says, after a recession, if he's at a cocktail party with his wife, people will come up to him. They'll say, what do you do for a living? And he'll say stocks. And they won't even look at him. They'll just walk away because they're so disgusted. Then level, level two, someone will ask him the same question. He'll say stocks. And they'll be like, oh, and then leave. The third stage, the person stays around just long enough to yell at him to tell him how risky and speculative stocks are. The fourth stage, people ask him what stocks to buy. In the fifth stage, people tell him, one of the greatest investors of all time, what stocks he should be buying because they apparently know better than him. And I think it's interesting with these meme stocks, a little bit of a story, but I think it's interesting with these meme stocks along with speculation and cryptocurrency and Kim Kardashian talking about Ethereum Max, how it almost feels in a very odd way that the top is near. I've gotten three texts from people asking me if um, what weed penny stocks, you know, like marijuana stocks sure. are going to go up 10,000% in the next week. I said to them, if I knew that answer, I would not be talking to you right now. I would have much bigger priorities, but it's really interesting. So do you get any 
Do you get more of that as the market does well from people outside of your, your clientele? Like maybe like family and friends, do you see more of that? Like Peter Lynch did, how does, how does that affect you in any way, shape or form? Well, I'm not necessarily someone that is pursuing the highest rate of return. Mm-hmm. I'm not an advisor who's helping all of my clients maximize their return. I'm an advisor who is helping them make less mistakes along the way yeah. um, and not make poor decisions, you know, um, not acting out of emotion, but, you know, having a plan in place, following the plan diligently, um, you know, meticulously having an investment process. I think that that's important. Um, as for growth versus value, um, you know, I, I don't think that. Greg, repeat the question for me. So the question just generally is as the market goes parabolic, as we've seen, yeah. do you get more people coming up to you simply because people are beginning to chase the stock market more? So, like how Peter Lynch, how Peter yeah. Lynch had people come up to him and tell him what stocks to buy and ask him because the market was doing well and people were just trying to jump in, it was a little bit too late. Even though you're not someone who's chasing the highest returns, do you still get that more as the economy does well or yeah, are you spared? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think um, people want to participate in what's going well and in, in, in the market's case, what's going up. Yeah. Um, and it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders is always jam-packed with information. And I believe in 2017 or 2018, one of the major themes was that you had to be greedy when others were fearful and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and, and right now, people are being really greedy. Investors are being um, somewhat irrational, some, some investors. And the market's flirting with all-time highs, Greg, to your point. Um, with that said, the market often flirts with all-time highs. So, you know, there's always a flip side to the coin. Um, yes, more people want to participate in the market when the market is, is rising and less people want to participate when it's falling. And I do get more phone calls when it's rising and less when it's falling. Although it's counterintuitive, right? Because when you walk into a store and nothing's on sale, well, that's the stock market when it's at its peak. Yeah. Yet people want to buy, but nothing's on sale. Mm-hmm. You walk into a store and everything's on sale, generally people start buying. But in the case of the stock market, when it's falling, in other words, it's on sale, people tend not to buy. So I, I think that there's a there there is a tailwind sort of um, of people that want to get on a train um, that's already left the station. Um, and oftentimes, um, people will get into the market at its peak, and they do it because they're following the pack. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's important to understand that when people are being greedy, maybe consider to be uh, cautiously optimistic, or even fearful, for that matter, mm-hmm. um, because what goes up must come down. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, if buying the dip was an Olympic sport, I'd have at least a silver medal. I mean, you you know, buying the dip is one of my favorite hobbies outside of talking to you, talking to you and playing Xbox and studying. So, you know, buying the dip, I'm a professional. Pulled my well, and that's, and that's, that's something that I think our generation will have. It, it, the, the term has been coined, right? I love the term. Yeah, it has been, it has been coined. Um, and so it's becoming universally understood that when the market falls, that's the opportunity to buy. And I think it's more universally understood with our generation than generations in the past. Yeah. It's over time, what's the market done? Over a period, thank you. So when you consider that, when the market falls, that's an opportunity uh, to stretch your dollar further. And you know, ultimately the market rises over time, historically speaking. So although the you know, historic pattern of the market doesn't guarantee the future pattern of the market, um, yeah, buying the dip is not a bad strategy. And I, I don't mind the term either. You know, what's funny is I, I noticed this. I was looking at it one day. Did you know that the Dow Jones, excluding the Great Depression, has never once dipped past the previous point? 
So like, for example, the coronavirus dip, it did not start, it did not go below dips in 08. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And because, because our bull runs are so long, at least, you know, I, I hope they are. I mean, you know, my career is going to be starting on one, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. That's what makes buying the dip great. And also, you know, a little professional tip from, from Gregory Shelsey, just shut off your phone if you're bleeding. I've had days, <laughs> I've had days, Mr. Breen, where I have to take like a pre-calculus test, a physics test, and my stock portfolio is down multiple percentage points. And I say, you know what? I'm just going to shut off the phone today. And it works. Remember, you can't get margin called if you uh, shut off your cell service. That's <laughs> Wall Street bets. I, I knew you'd like that one, so I was saving it for the perfect time. But um, as for as for the market gyrations in the market, it, it, it's been a pain in the butt lately, at least in my opinion, because everyone is afraid about inflation. So mm-hmm. for me, not to toot my own horn, but when you know they were printing hundreds of millions of dollars, I said, "Oh, there's going to be inflation." That's a logical progression. Mm-hmm. I, oh, yeah. I apparently was one of like five people in the entire world that thought that. So what are your thoughts, especially as an adult and someone who's been to college about inflation? Why is everyone so scared? Why? Like I understand, but at the same time, I feel like it should be expected. So what are your thoughts on inflation? Why do you think everyone's so skittish? Yeah. Um, well, in 2020, we experienced the first modern pandemic. And I think that the Federal Reserve did what they had to do to put the floor underneath of what was a falling market because of fear induced by that pandemic. Yeah. Um, and the floor that they put in place, to your point, Greg, was a six point something trillion dollar stimulus package and counting and counting. And so that certainly suggests inflation. You, you can't simply put 25% of US dollar in circulation overnight and expect that you're not taking a huge bite out of the dollar. Yeah. And so we're going to see the cost of goods rise accordingly because the value of the dollar will fall. But as for as a whole, in the long run, with people printing money, and the fact that we aren't on the gold standard anymore, mm-hmm. inflation yeah. is just something that's bound to happen right? Like over time, goods are going to cost more yes. just because everything is growing. So don't get me wrong. Do I want us to keep printing money? No, because I might have to take matters into my own hands and start burning money in my backyard to stop inflation <laughs> myself. But fact of the matter is I just don't know. I don't understand all of the irrational fear. Jerome Powell, there's a meme and it calls Jerome Powell, Papa Powell. He's everyone's father. He is not my father. My father's Anthony Shelsey, but I love Jerome Powell dearly. And I don't know what what all the hate is on him. I, I to me it just doesn't make sense. And I know you're limited in what you can and can't say. But it, can you help me piece it together? Because I'm lost. It just it doesn't. It, inflation is I feel something that's bound to happen over the course of time. It that, it is inevitable. I think we're what we're going to see is hyperinflation due to the hyper stimulus. Um, hyperinflation. Well, what we're going to see is inflation concerns remain front and center this year and the year after and the next. Um, inflation data and inflation presser is going to influence monetary policy. Um, that's ultimately going to be a, a central focal point uh, moving forward. Um, it's going to have an impact on, for instance, my clients who... Um, have very conservative portfolios and are in retirement, they have purchasing power risk, right? Like there's yeah. a significant increase in the cost of goods for my clients that are in their retirement years, where we expected household expenses to be $65,000. All of a sudden, those same expenses are 5% more, right? Yeah. So ultimately, for someone who is in high school or someone going through university. Um, or some, a young bodybuilder. So someone who has their side. Um, that's something that I think is it's less impactful. You know, you're, you're saying, Greg, you're saying, help me understand why is this such a big deal? For you, it's not. Yeah. For someone on the cusp of retirement or someone well into their retirement where inflation's influence might very well derail their financial plans and they don't have 
a plan B, that's um, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. There's always a plan B. You make Should them a Reddit and you put them on Wall Street bets, and they buy the first options contracts they see. But you don't seem to want to be sticking to that idea. So it's okay. Yeah. I'll get you on it at some point. But <laughs> generally speaking, generally speaking, if I'm so worried that one of your clients is going to hear this and be like, "Oh boy." He's about to YOLO my entire retirement, but I promise that's not the case. Um, but as for the fact that you're dealing with older people, for my listeners that don't know, as you get older, you you move from being more in stocks to mm-hmm. bonds. To mm-hmm. me, bonds are lame. I'm going to try and live my whole life without owning a bond. I, I don't know. I'm just hardcore. Um, <laughs> it's just I I can't I can't convince myself, but. When you're looking at a situation like we have right now where bond yields are still low and your clients also don't want as much risk, where does a financial advisor look generally to pivot? Because you can't, you know, we're not doing YOLO stock options. We're not doing uh, semiconductor companies with enormous price to earnings ratios. So there goes half of my expertise. So I really don't know where you're going to go. So what, where do you look generally? The commodities market? What do you think? Well, no. Um commodities personally um, so yeah in this market greg to your point fixed income doesn't hold up well and for clients that have a lot of fixed income in their portfolio um bonds in other words um provide income um, and there are fixed income alternatives like bonds for someone who's got let's say 80 percent of their portfolio in bonds or fixed income um, and they're in retirement, and we're in this kind of market, their portfolio starts producing negative returns or no dividend um, yeah. or no dividend. And this this problematic, right? Because they're relying on that for their income or principal stability. Um, and in this in this market, fixed income just doesn't hold up well. So first and foremost, you know, these tactical portfolio updates, they always depend on the client. And I've said it once, I'll say it again, everyone's risk tolerance and time horizon is different regardless of the broader market environment. So I think that's important to understand and to lead with. Um, The tactical portfolio recommendations have to align with the comprehensive financial plan that's in place, not solely based on the broader market. So for fixed income alternatives, um, if they're looking for income and not necessarily principal stability, maybe a dividend-focused mutual fund or a dividend-focused ETF, a pooled investment vehicle where they're not highly concentrated in one particular stock, it's not a bad place to be. If principal stability is in a consideration, those kinds of pooled investment vehicles will generate some income um, and likely outperform a bleak bond market. Um, And if principal stability and income is the objective I personally consider structured products, amongst other things. Um, Can you define that, please? Structured sure. products. So, like an equity-linked note. Um, Still lost. Would be. Never, I've never heard of a structure. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. So, for instance, like one one kind of structured product um, would be an equity-linked note. There's a lot of different. There's credit-linked notes, interest rate-linked notes, um, and this is essentially a debt instrument but it's split into tranches and there are principal components and interest components. And for the principal component of an equity linked note, it's the principles protected, which is why this is a great fixed income alternative. Um, And this differs from traditional fixed income because it has a payout that is based on um, the return of an underlying equity. So it's not a bond. Uh, Yeah. And so it could be a single stock, it could be a basket of stocks. It could be an equity index like the NASDAQ, Dow Jones, the S&P. And this is just one of the fixed income solutions that I would consider during like a, a, a bleak bond market like what we're seeing now. Um, something that provides principal stability, um, but still has some upside. And there are a lot of really competitive solutions out there to combat interest rate um, environments like this. So, you know, again, always comes down to the client and what's best for, you know, the most suitable solution for, for that particular situation. And to wrap it up, 
if you had to give one piece of advice to young people who are looking to invest and embark upon life, whether it's protein powder, equity notes, what would be one piece of advice you could give to the listeners to help them be better investors, people, and uh, leg day doers? I'm, I'm killing you today. I wish the audience could see you laughing. You're like muting yourself when you're laughing. Don't worry, guys. He thinks I'm funny. I'm like happy you that he's laughing. Um, I think, you know, at a certain point, you have to set your emotions aside, whether it's, you know, something that you're doing for your physical fitness or something that you're doing in your career or in the, in the realm of investments. Um, and you have to have intellectual framework um, and a process and you have to develop a process, whether it's for your investments, whether it's a, a money routine, a workout routine, a nutrition routine, um, whatever that is, um, you have to build good habits. You have to build strong habits and micro routines to enforce those habits. And you have to follow that routine meticulously without emotion and simply focus on the process, uh, regardless of what you're doing. So whether you want to be a financial planner or you want to be a bodybuilder, you want to be a hedge fund manager, if you don't have the end in mind and you don't develop framework to get there, um, you're just hoping and praying that you're going to bump your way into that situation. So if you're trying to pursue an 8% rate of return, you should be looking at an investment process, an investment thesis and underlying fundamentals to ensure that you can achieve that 8% rate of return. Um, you shouldn't just pick a stock that you hope gets an 8% rate of return. So yeah. you shouldn't pick a work, workout routine that you hope gets you toward your goals. You shouldn't choose a diet or a nutrition routine that you hope will help you lose weight. Um, I think that if there's one piece of advice that applies everywhere, it's just be calculated and make sure that you understand where you're going and how you're going to get there. And also use good protein powder. If you want to plug a name, you can. Maybe I'll get a sponsor. Any nope. comment on that or no? No, no protein powder plugs. Perfect. So thank you so much for joining me. And uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, that was Regis Green joining us for this episode of Gen Zenomics, covering everything from his childhood to what protein powder to buy, although he did not want to comment. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you guys in the next episode.